It's Monday the 26th of October 2020. My name's Alex Elliott, and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened, and why we should care. Uh, I'm joined today by Daniel Svavosson, the Chief Economist at Landsbankin, to talk about developments in the economy thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. But first, I have a conversation with Amir Nasir, who is a stateless Rohingya Muslim from Myanmar, who has been fighting the Icelandic system for over three years to try and get to stay here. Um, according to the Icelandic courts and appeals process, he is Pakistani. Um, but according to Pakistan and to him himself, he isn't. Um, so here we talk to him about how life has been. Um, uh, Amir, um, p- critics of the Icelandic um, immigration system often point out that lives are complicated yes. and that it can be quite easy to fall through the gaps. Um, I think you're a very good example of someone who seems to have fallen through the gaps. Could you tell us a little bit about your story, about how you came to be here? Uh, three and a half years ago, in 2017, I flew from Denmark and I came here to Iceland. Uh, I am from uh, Myanmar. I, I was born in Myanmar, and then my family was migrated to Bangladesh. We stayed there like a little while, and from there we went to uh, India, and then we stayed there a year. And after one year, we flew to Pakistan, where I studied, like where we I spent my whole childhood and my whole life there. But in 2016, I left Pakistan. Uh, because of being stateless and uh, have no identity. So someone suggested me to go to Europe and try the luck, you know. So I came here to Europe uh, all the way through these countries, Iran and Turkey, you know, and, you know, Greece and Bulgaria, so many countries. So my des- destination was Iceland. So I came to Iceland uh, in 2017 and, yes. So that was uh, more than three years you've been here now. Um, uh, what's happened since then? I've been here like three and a half years, I think, and they rejected my case like uh, multiple times, like four to five times, and they always say that uh, we don't believe you, that you are a Rohingya, that you are from Myanmar. They always say that uh, we believe that you are from Pakistan, just because I speak their language. So, yes. And so this has been causing you problems throughout this time. Um, I believe your case has been to court. Uh, it's certainly been appealed on several occasions. Where where are you stood right now? What's the situation at the moment? Uh, yes, uh, I got rejected three times from the immigration. Then I appealed and uh, I hired a private lawyer and she took my case to the court. And it's been like more than a year that uh, my case is in the court. And I even won the case from the court, but the state, they went for appeal and they appealed uh, against my case. And now my lawyer is saying that uh, it might take like a year or more, like we cannot say because of this COVID, you know, things are lasting more. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it is very hard to, to wait for more than three and a half years. And they don't believe you for anything. Like I went through DNA, I provided my school certificate, but still they are saying that, uh, they're asking me to provide them a passport, but I told them that I'm a stateless because uh, I was born in uh, Myanmar and being a Rohingya Muslim, like uh, they don't issue a passport to the Rohingya Muslim, but uh, they are not 
believing me for this. They are saying that no, you you have to have provide you know your passport and or your ID or your license or something, uh, which I cannot because it doesn't exist. So yes. Mm. And so that's the that's the core of, of of the state's case against you is that they just don't believe that you are from Myanmar. Uh, yes, yes, they don't believe me that I uh, I'm from Myanmar, and uh, even even though I provided them my DNA, uh, which uh, clearly says that this guy is not from Pakistan, and also I provided them my school certificates uh, from Pakistan where I studied. Uh, in which it's also stated that this guy is uh, from Myanmar. Uh, he was born in Myanmar, even it shows my address and everything. Uh, but still, they don't believe me. And yes. Mm -hmm. And you say this: the, the latest appeal, the current case, could possibly drag on for another year. Um, what are you doing in the meantime? Uh, yes, they said it, it's going to take like a year or more than a year. Uh, meanwhile. Uh, I've been uh, to the tin can factory to the school for the language uh, classes. Uh, I went there and I did uh, the first level. And after that, it was this uh, corona stuff. So yes, now we cannot do anything. Gyms are closed, swimming pools are closed. Everything is closed, so we cannot do anything. Mm. Yeah. Explain to us a little bit what kind of um, mental impact this can have on a person, this level of uncertainty for such a long time. Well, you know, coming from, you know, like I was uh, born stateless and like since since I have these memories of my childhood, you know, like since I have these memories, I've been uh, running and, you know, trying to get a place to, you know, to have my own identity or something, struggling for this all my life and I couldn't get it and now I'm 25 years old and still I have no identity. Like uh, if someone asks me like, what's your name? And I say, my name is Amir. If they ask me to prove it, I cannot prove it because I have no identity. And identity is something that, uh, you know, it shows your existence. And at the moment, like, I don't exist because I don't have any identity, I don't have any status. And uh, of course, it's uh, you know it breaks your, uh, it, it breaks your you know uh, it breaks your mentally it it breaks your spirit you know that you cannot stay focused at your life. Uh, Sometimes you will feel so depressed and you know there are so many things that's going on and you know if you need any kind of help here even, uh, they will not help you. Like if you, for example, I have some you know teeth issues and I've been to the to the immigration and my social but you know they don't get it fixed for you or they don't do anything you i've been sharing you know this uh, uh, apartment like with my, my room here for three and a half years with someone else you know like guys are coming and changing you know i cannot have my own privacy there are so many things and you have very less opportunities that if you like i cannot study i cannot do work i cannot do anything so it is very hard very very hard yeah mm. if it goes um, the way you want, what will be the outcome of this appeal? What will come next for you if it goes if it goes well? Uh, if I win this case from the court, uh, hopefully, uh, yes, I, I will. Uh, hopefully, I will have a very better life. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna start work and I'm gonna go for education. I speak six languages, you know. 
uh, through which I can I can be very you know I can be an asset for the system or I can be very helpful you know I know that I can do a lot of things you know I I would you know there are a lot of things like waiting for me to do like uh, but yes yeah. it is something that uh, can't uh, explain you know or because it is very hard. Uh, uh, because they are saying that it's going to take like a year or more than a year, uh, um, but I'm not sure that you know the outcome will will be in my favor. Mm. Yes. You mentioned being an asset to the system and, yes. and paying your way. Um, obviously, the case as it is now is costing the state a lot of money, and it's like they're they're spending a lot of money to fight their case. What message would you have to to the immigration system as a whole in a situation like this? Are they do you know what I mean? Are they sort of, are they pushing too hard and spending too much money to try and push out a good person? <laughs> uh, well, they're spending too much money uh, on things which are, which are, you know, uh, let's say, which are useless. Because I mean, they shouldn't, they shouldn't push me, push me for three and a half years. Like I, I, I've had right, you know. Like there is a, there is a law in uh, in Iceland that if you spend eighteen months here, you know. And you don't get deported uh, to back any countries, you will you will have the right to get the uh, the permit for for on the humanitarian base. Mm -hmm. They even rejected me that, you know. So I mean, they are just uh, pushing me, you know, to for three and a half years and maybe a year or two more. Uh, yes, and spending money on these things. But I mean, if they would have given me like in the start the permit and. Uh, allow me to work, so I, w I would be working, and I'm, I would be paying taxes. I would not be burdened on the, on the state or on the, on the government. I would be, I would affording my own expenses, you know. But they are spending money on those things, and I mean, uh, which are not uh, good. Uh, and what exactly is it that the state side is pushing for right now? Because they can't. Uh, my understanding of it is that it would be difficult to deport you to any particular country because. It cannot be proven where you're from. Uh, basically, they cannot deport me to any country. Uh, <clears throat> they asked me one uh, a year ago they, uh, to come to this uh, immigration. I went there, and there was these two police officers. They even took my photos, and they said that we are uh, contacting the Pakistani embassy in Norway, and we are trying to get you, um, uh, you know, this uh, documents, uh, travel documents, to to send you back to Pakistan. And I said, I'm not from Pakistan. How can you send me to Pakistan? And they said, No, uh, uh, we can do that. And they took even my photo, and uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, they cannot deport me anyway because I have no fingerprints and Myanmar will not accept me. I'm not from Pakistan, so they're just keeping me here for no reason. Three and a half years. And wasting everybody's time, presumably. Uh, wasting everybody's time and mostly my time. Mostly my time because, I mean, that's their job. I mean, they are sitting in the offices, but I'm the one, uh, you know, whose time is wasting or whose life is just wasting in, in nothing and, yeah. What message would you have for the system overall um, and the way it treats people? Uh, my message to the system is that you know, if uh, I just I would I would like them to to hurry up my case, you know, that uh, to get to to issue me this permit so that I can I could work, I could start work, and I could you know uh, possibly study uh, in the future. Uh, yes, that's that's all. Mm.
Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have an inkling at this stage about uh, about which way it's going to go? Obviously, it's it's stretching on into the future, and it's very frustrating for you. But do you feel that this time it's looking good for you? Uh, I can hope for that, uh, but I'm not sure because I'm not uh, aware of the system. You know, most of the time the system uh, doesn't work in my favor. Uh, like for three years, they've been rejecting me so many times for no reason. I, I provided them all the documents and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, only this one time I won the case and still they appeal against it. So I'm not sure, but I can hope for that, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the positives that you've taken from this experience? Obviously, the immigration service has not been particularly helpful to you. Um, what about outside of the official system? Um, you've made friends here. You've certainly made some allies here, and people have been helping you. Is that right? Yes, uh, people are so nice, uh, except the system. Uh, people are very nice. Uh, people have been helping me a lot. Uh, I have many friends here yeah, from Iceland. I have many f- other friends. And one thing I learned from all uh, through this struggle time and from all this hard time is that never give up. So I'm, I'm not going to give up so easily on that. Yeah, I'm going to stick to it. Uh, just very good luck to you, Amir, and uh, I hope it goes well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Daniel Svavason, uh, Chief Economist with Landsbankin. It's been, give or take, about six months, half a year since we spoke last. And yeah. it's fair to say a lot has changed. Um, what are some of the biggest changes from your professional perspective? Well, of course, uh, the, the coronavirus continues to uh, affect both the economy and, and, uh, and life in general. Um, we had a very positive development uh, this spring and early summer where we saw um, the virus pandemic kind of subsiding and, and life kind of almost returning to normal. People were even starting to travel again and both Icelanders going abroad and, and tourists starting to arrive in Iceland. But then again, we got this second wave late summer and this autumn that uh, seems to be at least as tough as the first one, if not even worse. So uh, things have gone from being like dark to bright to getting dark again, so to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does that mean for you at work now? You're reacting on a daily basis, I assume. Yeah, well, I'm like most other people that can, uh, working from home. Uh, We came out with a a new forecast last week, uh, macro forecast for for Iceland. And, uh, well, the the broad strokes are we're looking at a very sharp contraction this year in in, in GDP growth. We're expecting the economy to uh, contract by 8.5% this year and the economy to start to recover very slowly next year, uh, next autumn. So basically we're assuming that uh, we will have a vaccine uh, close to the end of this year, at least uh, either the end of this year or early next year, but uh, that it will take time to manufacture and distribute uh, the new vaccine. So uh, it, uh, like uh, late Q3 next year, we might see uh, this kind of herd immunity starting to develop both in Iceland and in, and in um, uh, tra- treating uh, countries. 
So we're not as expecting the tourism sector in Iceland to start picking up until late next year. So uh, until then, the economy is going to be recovering very slowly. Uh, we're expecting that we will be through this third wave uh, here in Iceland uh, end of this year. So we might start to return to some kind of normal domestically, like we saw in, in May and June. But uh, we're expecting that there will still be strict um, uh, controls at the airport, so the, the tourism sector will will be in very slow motion until September, October, maybe. Mm. What is the um, impact on having strict controls like we have now, or rather looser controls like we had in the summer, on other areas of the economy that aren't directly related? Uh, for example, fisheries, um, industry, and, and, and whatever else. Uh, it's not having a, um, a huge impact on the manufacturing sectors uh, like uh, aluminium and, and uh, in the fishing sector, but it, it is having a, a big impact on, on the service sector. Uh, and of course, some sectors of the service uh, economy is, is basically shut down now for, for hair salons and massage parlors and stuff like that. Uh, and also, um, the effects of school closings are, are, have, a, have a significant in, in impact on, on both the economic uh, <clears throat> life and and uh, and um, uh, yeah, and, and then the kind of like openness of the uh, of the uh, society. Although the schools are are open now, at least the, the for for the youngest pupils, there are you know infections coming up and and. Uh, and the temporary closings due to quarantine measures. But uh, uh, most people that can work from home are working from home, and we're expecting that to continue until mid-November. And uh, that has the effect people are spending less, people are not going out to restaurants, and, and it kind of slows everything down. Mm. But on the other hand, some sectors of the economy are doing well. Uh, retail, Some sectors of the retail sector are, are going quite good. Uh, furniture and ele electronics have been selling like hotcakes. So uh, uh, the impact of this downtown is, is quite unevenly distributed. We're seeing like, the, for example, the unemployment rate is very, very high in uh, service sectors connected to tourism. But in other sectors, uh, like in retail, uh, there are very small impacts. And uh, people that uh, have a steady job, they are looking uh, forward to a pay increase uh, in connection to the, the collective bargaining agreements that were signed um, uh, earlier this year. So over the next three years, we are ex actually expecting wages to increase for a, a fair amount. And, but uh, the impact for people that are losing their job is, is very tough. Mm. And uh, the Confederation of Icelandic Enterprise wanted to cancel that pay rise, didn't they? Um, and you can you can see why they would want that. Um, but it was it didn't pass through, and they've decided the easiest thing to do would be to carry on with it rather than to risk uh, industrial action. How do you view that decision? Yeah, um, I mean, if if they were probably sitting down to negotiate today for uh, for um, wages over the next three years, they, they would probably never negotiate uh, that kind of deal that they uh, that they did. But 
there were very weak weak grounds in in the contract to actually uh, you know cancel it. Uh, it it would have increased uncertainty at a very difficult time to to have uh, the labor market up in um, in uh, yeah with strikes and stuff like that but uh, i mean these are very expensive pay rises for for the for many sectors but other sectors they're doing quite well and can easily uh, afford them but uh, for those sectors that are hit the hardest this is probably going to have the effect that uh, the unemployment in those sectors is going to be even higher than it would have been without the uh, pay increases. But of course, more money in people's pockets is positive and and, and is a boost to other companies, even though they're paying their own staff more. So I suppose it works both ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. But... uh, um, the kind of like boost we saw this summer when people started traveling uh, domestically and going out to uh, restaurants and stuff like that, that that's a very good um, uh, increase in private consumption from, from like an economic perspective because there, there was mostly focused towards domestic services. But uh, when people are just buying more stuff that is imported from abroad, we are kind of like, it doesn't have that much effect uh, domestically because we're basically exporting that demand. Mm-hmm. And uh, a large portion of, uh, of the private consumption in Iceland is uh, imported. And Iceland's a very small economy, so uh, it's very difficult for, for, for the Icelandic economy to, to spend its way out of a recession. Uh, like, for example, you could do in bigger economies like uh, the Eurozone or, or in the US. Mm. Uh, where private consumption is a much larger part of the total GDP. Uh, but they are talking about spending their way out of the crisis in terms of infrastructure um, investments and, and putting money into the public sector. Has that started to see effects yet? Absolutely, and that, that's, prob- that's the right way to, to, to go. Uh, at the moment, it's mostly the, the so-called automatic stabilizers that are... Uh, Effect, uh, having effect now in in the public finances and and the automatic stabilizers are basically like uh, the the income is going down but uh, the um, expenditures they are staying constant or even increases increasing uh, and then I'm referring to things like unemployment benefits and, and stuff like that but uh, the the problem with the big public infrastructure project is that they take time. So actually, when we look at the numbers for the first two quarters of this year, the public spending on, on investment is, has actually gone down. But there's a lot of projects in the pipeline, and, and hopefully they will get them uh, going soon. Uh, so um, over the year, in total, we're expecting public in investment expenditure to increase by around 20%. Mm. And that absolutely is going to help. And uh, and it's exactly what we need at a time like this. Um, another thing that's generally quite good for the economy is Christmas. Um, tell me a little bit about Christmas this year, because it's not going to be the same as usual. Um, certainly, we're not going to be seeing parties and restaurants and trips around the country and things like that. Um, what opportunities do you see for stimulation there? That's a very good question. Uh, I mean, uh, Icelanders... There's a, we probably won't be going abroad on Christmas vacation trips, uh, but 
I think the spending is going to depend very much on how we are going to be, uh, if you're going to be successful in, in this, um, bringing this third wave of the of the, of the pandemic down before Christmas, because a lot of the spending in December is uh, in regards to, you know, the Christmas buffets, people are going out with their workplaces and with their friends and families. Uh, there's a lot of spending uh, around that and also like the, the Christmas concerts and all of those activities are involved in meeting other people's people and if we are not going to be able to, you know, if, if the pandemic is still raging at the pace it is now, uh, those activities are going to be hampered very se severely. And uh, instead people are probably going to be spending more on, on things, uh, you know, buying buying uh, uh, stuff but um, so I, I don't think we're gonna see a, a new record spending this December compared to previous years but uh, if the virus is fairly under control we we might see a, a boost for 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 restaurants and and the, the culture sectors with concerts and <clears throat> the, the traditional Icelandic Christmas concerts uh, that's going to be a boost both for for the entertainment sector and, and um, uh, yeah and, and, and people in general to to be able to go out and, and meet other people. What are some of the bright spots you see ahead? Maybe early next year um, that are making you feel slightly more positive than you might otherwise. Well, there seems to be good news coming out about vaccine developments. Uh, Dr. Fauci in the U.S. Is, uh, seems to be quite confident that we are going to be going to have a, a first vaccine ready uh, very soon, probably before the end of the year. Uh, so if that goes well, uh, and hopefully we'll get more vaccines uh, ready, because uh, there are several um, promising uh, strands being developed uh, at the moment uh, and I'm also hopeful that people are are, are going to be willing to to get vaccinated the, there hasn't been a lot of vaccine skepticism in Iceland but in in many countries uh, for example the US I mean there are there are vaccine skeptics in general so the it's not, uh, not only necessary to have a, a good and effective vaccine, you also need to have people willing to take the vaccine. But if, if that all goes well, I think uh, we're going to start seeing a very uh, good recovery uh, late next summer and, and early next fall. Uh, just briefly before we finish, um, tell me a little bit about the housing market, the property market, because it's been quite remarkable how prices keep going up and how demand is so strong. Um, why is that? And did you expect it earlier this year? No, it's actually been a stronger market than we were expecting in, in April and May. Uh, traditionally, when we see a, a large pickup in unemployment, we get a weak housing market. But at the same time, now for basically the first time in a, a very long time, uh, we have seen interest rates go down. Uh, usually during Icelandic recessions, uh, we get an inflation spike due to uh, devaluation of the of the krona. But uh, now, uh, with the inflation quite low, the central bank has uh, 
lowered the interest rate to uh, record low levels, and that has boosted the housing market very significantly. Mm. So we've seen the, the prices move stronger than we were expecting uh, this spring. Uh, and there's also another interesting development in the housing market that uh, we're seeing uh, stronger demand for um, for uh, large apartments and uh, what was it called condominiums or you know villas. Mm. It seems that uh, the pandemic is having an effect that people want to have more space. People are working from home. And sometimes, you know, both parents and, and the kids are home at the same time, and, and that seems to be fueling demand for, for more square meters. So we're seeing uh, the larger properties, um, the prices of them increasing uh, faster than, than for the smaller properties. And that's also a trend that we've seen abroad in, in, in Scandinavia and, and in the U.S., Really interesting, isn't it? Um, well, Daniel, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of The Week in Iceland. Uh, my thanks to my guests, Amir Nasir and to Daniel Svavason. Join us again next week on Monday, the 2nd of November on roof.as forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook through the Roof app and your favourite podcast platform. We finish today with a song by Yonsi featuring Robin, and it's called Salt Licorice, that most famous of Icelandic foods. Bye for now.